the sermon text reading is from Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. It's misprinted in your bulletin, but follow along with the sound of my voice. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Always great to be with you guys here again, and uh, great to be with the ones that are here online as well as here in person. And uh, as Mike alluded to, I love this church very much for a lot of different reasons and thankful. Uh, In 2018, Baker Books published a work written by a gentleman who's from here in Atlanta named Jack Alexander. And the title of the book is intriguing to me. The title of the book is The God Impulse, right? The God Impulse. Now, if you had to think of one impulse of God, one desire of God that defines him maybe more than any other impulse, what would that be in your opinion? It could be a lot of things you might guess that could all have equal validity, I would suppose. It could be his creativity. He's made all that exists. It could be his his power. Everything that exists comes into existence by the will of his power. Uh, Everything that he does is an expression of his power. It could be his righteousness, his holiness, his opposition to sin. The list could go on and on. But the characteristic of God, the impulse of God that Jack Alexander chose to wrote about is the impulse of mercy. The impulse of mercy. Now think about that, if he is correct. That the greatest impulse of God, the one that defines him more than anything else, is the impulse of mercy. I think that might be true when you look at the scriptures as a whole. Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, has defined grace as God's goodness toward those who desire judgment, and mercy is God's goodness toward those who are in misery and distress. And that's all of us, right? Absolutely 100% of us, at one point or another, in misery and in distress. I love the lyrics of uh, U2 on a lot of different songs, and One of the songs has the lyric, uh, the heart that hurts is the heart that beats, correct? The heart that hurts is the heart that beats. Every person with a beating heart at some point or another is in distress. And it's interesting as God interacts with us, it is always a combination of his grace and his mercy. Because we are sinners and because our sin is deep enough and broad enough that we rightfully would deserve his judgment, every time God gives us mercy, he is also giving us grace. And in those times in which we wonder, Lord, where is your mercy? It is often very important for us to remember that we are always in need of his grace and that he actually owes us nothing. But everything that good he gives to us is an expression of also of grace as well as mercy. But how important is this mercy? Well, for those of us that know him, Psalm 2510 in the old King James Version says that all of God's ways are mercy and truth. 
all of God's ways are mercy or true and true. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it means everything that he does for you, all of his ways, all of his paths are guided by these two things, mercy and truth, mercy and truth, never one without the other. Mercy is so important. Uh, here are just a few verses of Psalm 136. The psalmist said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. And then for 26 verses in Psalm 136, the psalmist focuses on three things. Who God is, and what God has done in creation, and what God has done in redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And after every one of these statements that falls into one of these three categories, he repeats this refrain, he has done this for his mercies endure forever. The mercies of God. However, I would submit to you this idea that when it comes to human beings and how they treat other human beings, mercy seems to be in short supply these days, don't you think? I think so. Our world is in crisis, our cities are in crisis, our country is in crisis over and over again, in large part, many, many times, because people do not seem to be able to give mercy to other people. We're in a series called Portrait of Jesus. We want to see who Jesus is, because who he is defines how we relate to him, and who he is shapes what we are to be. And as we consider the mercy of Jesus, I would submit to you that there is something in our hearts that stunts or prohibits us from both being able to experience the mercy of God and being able to give it to other people. We need to experience the mercy of God. We want to be able to give the mercy that we've received from God to other people. But there is something in our hearts, something in our minds, something in our spirits that keep us from both experiencing His mercy and giving it away. And so right off the bat, uh, before we even dig into the passage and talk about it, before we dig into a more a deeper look into our hearts, I want to give you the essence of today's message, and I want to go ahead and expose this mercy blocker in our hearts. And here it is. The heart of Christianity is not the difference between good people and bad people. It's the difference between humble people and proud people. Unfortunately, in our pride, we fail to see our need for mercy and we fail to adequately extend mercy to other people. Let me read that again. Unfortunately, in our pride, we fail to see our need for mercy, and we fail to adequately extend mercy to other people. But in Jesus, we find an infinite source of mercy, and we find God's empowerment to extend mercy to other people just like us. That's what we want to talk about here today. I want us to look at four different parts of this message today. First of all, out of the passage, we want to look at uh, mercy for a marginalized man. And then from there, we want to look at the life of Jesus as a whole, and we see the merciful heart of Jesus. And then by way of application, Jesus' mercy to us, and then Jesus' mercy through us. Okay, so that's where we're going. Mercy for a marginalized man, the story that we've heard read, the merciful heart of Jesus, and then Jesus' mercy to us. In Jesus' mercy through us. Let's first talk about this story that we've read and heard read here by Jim. Uh, who are the primary players of this story that we've just read? Well, I think there are three. There's, first of all, obviously, there's Jesus. The Gospels are about Jesus, and this story's about Jesus. Well, this event 
happens very early in the ministry of Jesus. But even though it happens early in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has already become the focus of the religious and political leaders of Israel, and they have begun to oppose him very, very seriously, though it's very early in his ministry. He's drawn this kind of opposition for a number of reasons. First of all, because of his message. He teaches as one with authority. He teaches a message that is good news for sinners, not bad news for sinners. That's very different from the religious leaders of that day. He is performing with miraculous power the healing of people that are sick and lame. And no earthly religious leader or Israeli leader of any kind has credentialed him to do these kind of things. So he's very, very controversial. But he's also controversial for another particular reason. From time to time, on the Sabbath day, he chooses to heal people. He chooses to do good. And that sounds like it wouldn't be a big deal, right? And it's not if really if we understand the Sabbath. But the religious leaders of this day had so uh, overdone things in trying to keep people from working on the Sabbath that they were not only telling the people of Israel to stay away from kinds of work that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. They actually were telling people to stay away from the kinds of things that God permitted on the Sabbath or even that he commanded on the Sabbath. They had turned things totally upside down. And so Jesus, in this story that we just had read for us, that we're looking at today, Jesus Jesus purposefully steps into that controversy. Is it good? Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? Is that all right? To give life or to take it away? And he creates a controversy. So the first key player here, obviously, is Jesus. The second key player in this story is the man with the withered hand. Now, the word for withered, the word itself, and the verb tense of that word implies here that this man's hand was not this way when he was born. Instead, the implication is that either through an accident or through disease, his hand literally had become dried up and was paralyzed. Now, we don't know all the reasons. We don't know the story behind it. In a a, a source of of, uh, information about the story that is not from the scriptures, and therefore we really don't know whether it's true or not, the the, the thought was that this man had been a stonemason. And if, in fact, he had been a stonemason or probably any other kind of work with his hands, which is like 95% of the workers of that day, that meant that this withered hand, this paralyzed hand, meant he went from a, being a worker to being a beggar. A worker to a beggar. It was devastating to everything about his way of life. And it meant that he was taken and pushed to the margin of society, to the edges of society. He has become a marginalized man because of this paralyzed and withered hand. So there's Jesus. There's the man with the withered hand. And the third set of players in this story would be the Pharisees. These were the prideful and legalistic religious leaders of Israel. And if you were to define one thing that gave the essence of their attitude, the attitude was this. We are all about God's rules and God's laws, but we don't really care about people, and we don't really care about their needs. So somehow for the Pharisees and also the people that that were like religious lawyers that helped them called the scribes, somehow the idea of holiness got separated from loving God by way of loving people. Those became two Two things were very, very far apart from one another. 
Whereas truly in the law of God and in the gospel of God, holiness is totally wrapped up with loving God and loving other people. But they had separated it out. In fact, the Pharisees uh, receive a scathing sermon from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And verse 23 of Matthew 23 describes the essence of the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. This is what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, that is all these uh, spices that they will grow even in their backyard. You're, you're careful to tithe every one of those little bitty things you grow just a little bit of, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are those? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're not seeking justice for people that are being treated unjustly. You're not giving mercy to people who are in need of mercy. And you have forsaken both faith and faithfulness. And so uh, the text here says that Jesus was angry with these Pharisees. And then it said that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And the verb tenses here imply that his anger was fleeting. It came and it went. But that his being grieved endured. What broke his heart was the hardness of heart of these Pharisees. So there's Jesus. There's the man with the withered hand, and there's the Pharisees. Now, I want you to see in this story a contrast between humility and pride. And it's all the difference in the world. This man with the withered hand was a humble man. The scribes and the Pharisees were proud, prideful people. And notice the difference. Let's think about the humility of this man. Here, Jesus is there on the Sabbath. He sees this man with a withered hand, and he is the one who initiates the healing. He says to that gentleman in front of everybody, come here. And all eyes turn upon this man and upon his withered hand. The man comes, and he walks toward Jesus, and everybody is looking. Everybody is staring at him. And then Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Now, I want you to get a picture of this. I'm sure the man must have had it go through his mind that if he could say it out loud to Jesus or if he could whisper to Jesus, he would say this, that's the one thing I can't do. Don't you get it? You're telling me to do the one thing that I cannot do. Are you trying to humiliate me? But in the economy of God, humility and faith are all wrapped up together. And so when this man stands and comes to Jesus... And when Jesus says, stretch forth your hand, and he obeys and starts to do that, I would submit to you that that was an act of humility and of faith. He was willing to be humiliated again in front of all these people, if that's what was going to happen. But he trusted that Jesus had his good in mind. And as he stretched out his hand, his hand was healed. His hand was healed as he stretched it out. He was humble enough to receive the mercy of God. And over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus deals with us this way. If you are to receive my mercy and grace, there is the need to embrace humility. At another point, Jesus heals a man who is blind. He puts mud upon this man's eyes. And he says, go wash this mud off in a certain river. And it was a terrible, terrible, foul river. This man would have been too prideful in his state of life and his status to go into that river. But Jesus says, go wash there. And the man had to embrace humility to receive the mercy and the healing of God. 
Now, in contrast to this humble man who embraced humility and faith, think about the Pharisees. In their pride, they absolutely did not have a place for mercy. In fact, Matthew's account of this same story says that the Pharisees left furious. The godlessness, the lack of holiness, the lack of love in their religious system had been exposed by Jesus. He had won up them in front of all these people, and they hated Jesus for this. They said, we've got to find a way to get rid of this man. And because of their pride, not only did they not see that this man was a valued image bearer, that he, they should have been rejoicing when he was healed, and they didn't. Their pride kept them from wanting to extend mercy to this man, but also their pride kept them from seeing that they needed God they needed Jesus to heal their paralyzed, hardened hearts. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were paralyzed. But never would they have thought about extending their hearts to Jesus and saying, Jesus, would you heal my paralyzed, hardened heart just like you've healed the paralyzed, withered hand of this man right here? Pride kept them from giving away mercy and from receiving mercy. My friends, isn't that just like you and me? It's our pride that keeps us from going to Jesus for mercy. And it's our pride, I would submit to you, that keeps us from extending mercy to other people to whom God wants us to give mercy. But in Jesus, we find an infinite source of mercy. We find a kind of mercy that can melt our hardened hearts. And we find a kind of mercy that can make us conduits of mercy to other people. That's what this story is all about. Now, it shouldn't surprise us here that Jesus gives mercy to a marginalized man. That's the kind of thing Jesus did all the way through the Gospels. He found the people on the margin, and he gave to them an unbelievable exhibit of mercy and grace. And that's what he does to us. So let's consider secondly here today the merciful heart of Jesus. Don't we see this over and over again in the Gospels? Mercy compassion, and pity. Consider verses like these. In Matthew 9, 36, this is what it says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 20, 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Mercy, pity, compassion. Mercy, pity, and compassion over and over again. And when Jesus exhibited that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's really a fulfillment of what God was to Israel in the Old Testament and of the prophecies of what the Messiah was going to be. Consider Isaiah 63, 9. This is how Yahweh interacted with Israel. And all their affliction, he also was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That is what Yahweh had done for Israel. And that's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. Then Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Here's the merciful heart of the Messiah. Jesus fulfills his prophecy. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. In other words, he's a humble Savior. He's a servant. He's not brash. He's not loud. He's not rude. 
But then notice what it says in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench or snuff out. Now, you know what a reed looks like, right? Often, reeds are used in beautiful settings. And there's nothing maybe more beautiful than a, than a group of reeds altogether. But a reed that is bruised means that it's wilted. It's, it's leaning over. It's, it's not attractive any longer. And if you want something that looks beautiful as a group of reeds, what do you do? You take the bruised one and you get rid of it. But it says here, no, Jesus isn't the kind that will take a bruised reed and break it off and throw it away. He'll let that bruised reed remain, even though it blemishes the rest of what's going on. Also, a, 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 a smoldering wick. You know what that's like, right? A wick that's not giving light, it's just giving smoke. It's smoldering. That's the idea here. And what does any person who's logical do, what do you do when there's a smoldering wick? You quench it altogether. But Jesus is so merciful that he will not quench and put out a smoldering wick. Instead, he will relight it. Let me ask you today, do you come here today or do you visit us online and you feel like a bruised reed? You feel like a smoldering wick. You say, this is a description of my life. I am barely hanging on. If my life is to be like a lamp, I'm not giving much light. I'm not burning brightly. In fact, I'm barely smoldering. Jesus does not want to quench you. He does not want to snuff you out. He wants to relight you. You say, I am more than a bruised reed. I'm a deeply bruised and hurt person. Then you need to know that the merciful heart of Jesus wants to come to you to restore you and to heal you. That's the kind of Savior he is. Let me highly recommend to you a book that I've read recently, and it's really rocked my world in a great way. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland, pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church. And in that book, he gives a quote from a great old theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield. And he quotes from an article or an essay by B.B. Warfield entitled On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's a fascinating article on the emotional life of our Lord. And in that article, this is what B.B. Warfield says. He says, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that man Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as going through the land doing good is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. Dane Ortland in his book tells a story that contrasts the mercy and compassion and pity of Jesus with our limited mercy and compassion. I don't know if I can really tell the story in a way that does it justice, so bear with me as I read you the story of Dane Ortland and what he experienced. He says in this book, I remember walking the streets of Bangalore, India a few years ago. I just finished preaching at a church in a town and was waiting for my ride to arrive. Immediately outside the church grounds was an older man, apparently homeless, sitting in a large cardboard box. His clothes were tattered and dirty. He was missing several teeth. And what was immediately most distressing was his hands. Most of his fingers were partially eaten away, and it was clear they hadn't been damaged by an injury, but had simply been eaten away over time. He was a leper. What happened to my heart at that moment? My fallen, prone-to-wonder heart. Compassion, a little anyway, but it was tepid compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. 
fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Why was my heart so cool toward this miserable gentleman? Because I'm a sinner. What then must it mean for a sinless man with fully functioning emotions to lay eyes on a leper? Sin restrained my emotions of compassion. What would unrestrained emotions of compassion be like? That is what Jesus felt. Perfect, unfiltered compassion. What must that have been like rising up within him? What would perfect pity look like mediated not through a prophetic oracle as in the Old Testament, but through an actual real human? And what if that human were still human, though now in heaven, and looked at each of us spiritual lepers with unfiltered compassion and outflowing affection, not limited by the sinful self-absorption that restricts our own compassion? Wow. Praise God for a merciful high priest like Jesus. The merciful heart of Jesus. The last two parts of our sermon here is the mercy of Jesus to us and the mercy of Jesus through us. We're going to look at that all together. And the reason we're going to look at it all together is I think the scriptures do. In fact, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's always bound up together, receiving mercy and giving mercy. And that doesn't mean we earn the mercy of God by giving mercy to other people. But it does mean this. The hallmark of someone who has received God's mercy is they are eager to give mercy to other people. Let me say that again. The hallmark of someone who's received God's mercy is that they're going to be eager to give mercy to other people. So let me ask you this. Have you been humble enough to acknowledge your need for the mercy of God? Have you really? You've been humble enough to acknowledge that. I like the way one minister put it. He said, uh, conservatives say, be good, and liberals say, do good. But the gospel leads me to say, I'm not good. (laughs) But there's someone who has been good on my behalf. And that is so very true. My heart is hard. My heart is paralyzed. My heart is far from perfect. But there's someone who has been perfect for me. He has a perfect record of obedience and righteousness. And then went as a spotless lamb of God to die a death for me. And just like those spotless lambs were in in the Passover meant that the judgment of God passed over those for whom a child, uh, a, uh, a, a lamb had been sacrificed. In the same way, his mercy comes to us when we put faith in Jesus as our spotless lamb. One, someone who's been perfect for us. You see, the gospel is the opposite of self-righteousness. <laughs> if you believe the gospel, you say, I don't have any righteousness of my own. If there's any righteousness that has come to me, it's come totally as a gift. Let me ask you again, have you been humble enough to cry out for the mercy of God? And if you have, what should you expect to happen? Well, if you have, if that's your attitude, you should expect this to be true of Jesus. It says in Matthew 11, this is the way Jesus will come to you if you've cried out for mercy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you reached out to Jesus for mercy, this is the kind of high priest he is. Hebrews 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God and make propitiation for the sins of his people. A merciful and faithful high priest. It would seem to me that this is true. 
that right now for both the political right and the political left, the cultural right and the cultural left, the religious right and the religious left, this is the attitude I see on both extremes. It's the attitude, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. That's the attitude that we see. I thank you that I'm so much not like them. But instead, the gospel leads us to do this, to lower our heads, to take an honest look at our hearts, and then humbly to cry out, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And if we do that, something else will happen. The mercy that flows to us can then begin to flow through us. We will love because we have been loved. We will give mercy freely because we have freely received the mercy of God. That is the gospel. I want you to hear this very, very well. It really comes from this book by Dane Ortland, who uh, relied heavily upon the writings of many of the Christian leaders from several centuries ago, their in-depth teaching and preaching about Christ. This was recently repeated by one of the ministers in our church when he was speaking to some young people, and it really caught my attention. This is what he said. When you are at your worst... God is drawn to you because he is rich in mercy. Do you believe that? When you are at your worst, it is not that he is repelled by you. When you are at your worst, God is drawn to you because he is rich in mercy. I would submit to you that most of us don't really believe that deep down inside. Most of us assume when I'm at my worst, God wants to punish me. God wants to slap me. God wants to get even with with me when I'm at my worst. How could I ever go to God when I'm at my worst? And the answer is, because he is rich in mercy, he is drawn to you when you are at your worst. And that kind of love is displayed at the cross. Let me end with this and then a reading from the New Testament. In my research, there were two pictures that were used by way of application from the withered hand, and I've alluded to both of these already. One commentator basically said this, reach out your own withered hand toward Christ. If you feel that you are unable or unwilling, do it anyway. That is faith. If you're unwilling or unable, try to do it anyway. That is faith. And if you have stretched out your hand, you will find out that your hardened heart is being healed inch by inch by inch as you lift it up to Christ. Another commentator has put it this way. When it comes to helping people who need mercy, it is our hands that are withered. We have great ideas. We have lots of words. But it is the hand of the deed that we are lacking. Where are the deeds of mercy? And I need to tell you, my friends, without the grace of God, this is exactly where I am. I am unwilling and unable to reach out my hardened heart to God and say, God, I need your mercy. Why is it over and over again I resist doing that because of of the pride of my heart? And over and over again, I refuse to reach out a hand to those who need mercy. I will find one reason or another to explain why they have created their own problem. And then in my self-righteousness, I will refuse to give them the kind of mercy that I want when I've created problems for myself. This is who we are without the grace of God. Only gospel-born humility will lead us to look into the eyes of a broken human being and see a reflection of our own brokenness and then have the courage to minister to them anyway. 
It is the mercy of God. We need to pray prayers like this. Oh, Lord, we confess our pride. Heal our withered hearts and hands that we might experience your mercy and give it away to other people. I want to conclude this sermon in a way I don't know if I've ever concluded a sermon as by reading a scripture passage together from Romans chapter 12 because it describes what it means to be a people of mercy. We're going to read aloud together Romans 12, verses 9 through 18 and verse 21. But first I want to read for you Romans 12.1. Listen to what Romans 12.1 says. This is what Paul writes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Now let me explain why that is so critical. In chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, and especially Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul has basically said, if you have experienced salvation, it is because of the mercy of God. No matter how much you knew about God beforehand, if you were a religious insider and knew a lot about God's word and about God, you still needed his grace and you needed his mercy. Or if you didn't know anything about God at all, very irreligious, very uneducated about the things of God, but God's grace found you and saved you. Either, either, in either case, if you have been saved, it is the mercy of God. And so here in chapter 12, he turns from 11 chapters of describing this wonderful theology of mercy and grace, and he starts to say, what difference should this make in the way we live? And the very first thing he says is that in light of God's mercies, give God your body as a sacrifice. Give it to him that you might serve him with your body and serve other people with your body. Do that. Do that. It's an extension of having received mercy. And then in verses 9 and following, I think he starts describing what it's like to be a merciful person to other people. Would you read aloud with me as you see it on the screen? Romans 12, 9 through 18 and verse 21. Let's read together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. O oh Lord, we do today, we call out to you that you would make us people that are known by this kind of mercy that we would live these kinds of lives and we would extend to others the kind of mercy that we want to receive when we are in distress and in trouble. Oh Lord, we thank you for the merciful heart of our Savior. May we understand and believe every day that when we are at our worst, you are eager to come to us. You are drawn to us because you're rich in mercy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Me. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. Let me... All right, we'll try it.